Welcome. Glad to see all of you this morning and glad to be here and finish up the Serpent Series for the summer. And so tragedy and hope has been our theme. And we've read about tragedies that Israel and that Judah endured. And we've drawn out four principles from those tragedies. So I just want to review those real quick. And um, so the first one was when we don't listen to God, we listen to the wrong people. And when we stop listening to God, we stop seeking help from God and we seek help from the wrong people. That's the second one. The third one is when we ask God for help and trust him, it keeps us from fearing other people. And then the one that we did last was that the small, silly choices that we make might not impact us, but could impact future generations. And so we've just looked at those four principles in relationship to some pretty specific uh, stories in Isaiah. And today we're going to wrap up with um, Cirrus and Salvation. And this story is a story of hope. It's a story of looking forward it's a story about being freed from captivity and about returning home. So we're gonna look at that today. Martin Luther King Jr. said, we must accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. And that message is still so appropriate today. The challenges that we face should never stop us from imagining a better future for ourselves and for our world. And that's the message of Isaiah. The message of Isaiah is with a God like our God, we always have a reason to hope. So we're going to start today in 2 Chronicles 36, 15 through 21. And I'm also going to read a little bit out of Ezra chapter 1. So 2 Chronicles 36, verses 15 through 21. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through the messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and did not spare young men or young women, the elderly or the infirm. God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small. And when he says he here, he's now talking about Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. Nebuchadnezzar carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rest. All the time of its desolation it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. And then in Ezra 1, 1 through 5, it says this, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a, <laughs> to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. 
This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. So basically, this is kind of a summary saying that uh, the people had stopped following God. They had been unfaithful to him and God had sent prophets to warn them over and over and over again to return to him. And it didn't make a difference. And so he uses Babylon to take them into exile and into captivity. And they spend 70 years there. And then Persia invades Babylon, and Persia then sets the Jews free and allows them to come back to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, and that's kind of where we are at this point. So Cyrus is the king of Persia who lets the exiles return back to Jerusalem. That's an important name that you want to remember. And because this is so um, factual and informational, I thought it might help to read something that put it into more of a, a story form and um, that it might make it a little more personal to you. And so I'm going to read just a short uh, passage from a book called Return to Me. It's by an author called Lynn Austin, and it's fiction. It's not um, true, but it is based on biblical and historical fact. So while it's a fiction story of what things might have been like, there is a lot of biblical and historical fact involved in it. The character um, that I'm going to be reading about today is called Edo, which is actually a name in the Bible. He was a part of this story. And in the Bible, he was a Levite that was taken into Babylonian captivity, and he was also um, a descendant or Zechariah the prophet was a descendant of Edo and so in this particular story Zechariah is portrayed as Edo's grandson so I'm just gonna um, start but at night when darkness hid the creator's beauty the images and sounds closed in on Edo scratching and clawing refusing to be silenced once they pounced they would strip him of everything he had accomplished ripping at the man he was now, reducing him to the 10-year-old child he had been when Jerusalem fell, helpless, terrified, naked, and shivering before his enemies. It brought back memories of the long siege of Jerusalem when the city had run out of food as well as water. He remembered his mouth being as dry as sand and the unending ache in his stomach. He remembered the vermin he had eaten to try to fill it the brackish water that hadn't quenched his thirst. 47 years had passed since he had lived the real nightmare, and Edo had spent those years here in Babylon. He had a wife, children, grandchildren, all born here. 
Yet the atrocities he'd seen in Jerusalem remained as vivid as the world he saw every morning. The nightmare never faded, never blurred. The terror that had destroyed Jerusalem was the Almighty One's punishment. All of the prophets had said so. God no longer dwelled with his people because they had been unfaithful to him. His temple was destroyed. His people scattered among the nations, living among pagan gods. So this gives us a glimpse into when Jerusalem fell, it was horrible for those people. It was a nightmare. Babylon was extremely violent, and as if that weren't bad enough, the temple was destroyed, and God's presence left his people, which was probably the worst thing that happened to them. They were taken to Babylon, and they lived there for about 70 years. Now, you hear him say in this narrative that it had been 47 but there were several waves of exile that happened over that period of 70 years. So some people had been there 70 years, some people had come later and been there less. But then another invasion happens that I told you about, Persia invades Babylon. And our story picks up when the Jews realize that Persia has invaded Babylon. An invasion. Edo turned without a word and hurried back to his walled courtyard, closing the wooden gate behind him, leaning against it. For the second time in Edo's life, enemy soldiers had invaded the city where he lived. His nightmare had become a reality once again. How could he protect his family? The truth was he couldn't. While younger men hurried home to barricade their doors, preparing to protect the people they loved with kitchen knives and clubs, Men like Ito, who remembered Jerusalem, knew they couldn't save themselves. So realizing this, the men of the community there go up to um, the House of Assembly so that they can pray. And once they get there, they hear that Daniel, again, a biblical figure, who is highly revered in Babylon, both among the Babylonians and among the Jews, and he works in the king's palace, they hear that he has survived this invasion and that he's coming to the House of Assembly to speak to them. We have nothing to fear from the new rulers, Daniel said. Darius the Mede has asked me to serve him as I serve the Babylonians. We're safe then, someone asked. Yes, we're all safe. Edo closed his eyes at the news and it sent murmurs of relief rippling through the hall. There's more, Daniel continued. I have been praying and studying the prophet's words for some time now, and the Holy One has shown me that the years of our captivity are nearing an end. He spoke through the prophet Jeremiah, saying that we would serve the king of Babylon for 70 years, and when those 70 years were fulfilled, he would punish the Babylonians. This invasion by the Medes and Persians is the beginning of that punishment. More than 3,000 of our captors have been executed, including the king and his noblemen. Our exile is coming to an end. We will soon return home to Jerusalem. A shout went up from the gathered men. Edo laid his hand on Zechariah's shoulder to steady himself. Home to Jerusalem. He longed to shout praises to the other men, but the news had stolen his breath. He was afraid to believe it, afraid to put his faith in something as impossible as returning to Jerusalem. The Almighty One would provide a new exodus from slavery. 
and they would return home just as he promised through his prophets. See, they were freed from captivity. They were going home. God had fulfilled his promises. And in Ezra 3.8, we see this beautiful description of making a beginning. It says, in the second year after their arrival at the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shelatil, and Yeshua, son of Jehozadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their people, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from captivity. And while we certainly haven't experienced a literal exile and captivity the way the Jews did, we have experienced an exile from our normal way of life. We've had to distance from friends and family and neighbors, and we've had to experience isolation. We've had to use technology versus face-to-face -face communication. We haven't been able to meet as a church body in over six months face-to-face. -face. We've had to limit our outings to restaurants and stores and for entertainment. And for most of us, where and how we do our jobs has been affected. And for some of us, our income has been affected. There's been fear and there's been confusion and there's been uncertainty, much like the Israelites. Decision making has gotten a lot more complicated as we have new concerns to factor in that haven't been there before. And like the Jews, we'll experience a time where we're freed from our exile, where we'll make a new beginning. David Rothkopf is a professor of international relations, a political scientist, and a journalist. And in his article, Hold On to Hope in the Coronavirus Pandemic that appeared in USA Today, he says throughout history, crises like coronavirus have resulted not just in pain and loss, but in knowledge and creativity that have fueled human progress. He goes on to say, we each have a role to play in this. We can despair or we can focus on the better world we want to make when we get to the far side of this latest crisis. We can focus on the better world we want to make when we get to the far side of this latest crisis. So the question I want you to keep in the back of your mind this morning is, what is my role in making a better world as we get to the far side of this latest crisis? What is my role in making a better world as we get to the far side of this latest crisis? I'm not gonna specifically address that question, rather I want it to be the backdrop for responding to the text this morning. What do we learn from Isaiah that will help us as we move forward and make a beginning? So I want us to focus on Isaiah 44 and the first part of 45. And you're gonna hear some of the same information that you've heard before, but I think it's good to hear it several times so you can kind of get the story straight, straight in your mind. So 40, Isaiah 44, 24. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophet and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense. 
who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited of the towns of Judah, they shall be rebuilt, and of their ruins, I will restore them, who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Do you hear a theme there? I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. You heavens above, rain down my righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide, let salvation spring up, let righteousness flourish with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to those who quarrel with their maker, those who are nothing but potsherds among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say the potter has no hands? Woe to the one who says to a father, what have you begotten? Or to a mother, what have you brought to birth? This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its maker. Concerning things to come, do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? It is I who made the earth and created mankind on it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled the starry host. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. So the first lesson that I see in this passage is God can work through anyone and anything. God can work through anyone and anything. To anyone outside the small, exilic Jewish community, Cyrus would have been the greatest figure in the world. He was the true power on the planet, and it was apparent that he thought that himself. According to his edict on the famous Cyrus Cylinder, which if you don't know what that is, and I didn't until I started researching this, um, it is an ancient clay cylinder on which was written a declaration in the name of King Cyrus. And this is what he said. It just almost makes me laugh. I am Cyrus, king of the world, great king, legitimate king, king of Babylon. But in spite of his relative importance in the human community, 
he was an he was just an instrument of God's hand and God makes that very clear in this passage that Cyrus is doing nothing that God has not enabled him to do. The passages that talk about Cyrus are not first and foremost about him. They're about God. They're about Yahweh and his plans for Israel's redemption. At the beginning of this text, we see a long list of God's attributes and actions. And that serves as a powerful self-introduction of Yahweh. It's as though God is saying, because I am the Lord, who is the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by myself, I can do this incredible Cyrus thing. I can deliver you through a king who's not an Israelite. I can deliver you through a king that's not a believer, but who is in fact a heathen or a pagan. That's what the Israelites would have considered him. And the Israelites probably didn't think it was the way for a proper God to act, to use a non-Israelite or a pagan. But God says, I, not kings, not politicians, not tragedies, have the last word. And I am God, and there is no other. See, God can use non-believers, and that should give us great hope. And I think especially about our workplaces. Um, we live in trust that God is active through the decisions and actions of non-Christian people and institutions. And I hear Christians often lament that they are part of a workplace that doesn't hold their same values, that doesn't lift up Christ as Lord. But I think that we have to remember that just as Cyrus was God's chosen instrument, whether or not he recognized God, similarly, the actions of our bosses and our coworkers and our customers can be furthering the work of God's kingdom unrecognized by themselves or by us. And that should prevent us from both despair and from arrogance. If God's values and plans seem absent from your workplace, don't despair. God is still at work there. On the other hand, if you're tempted to see yourself or your Christian company is better than others, and blessed by God because of your goodness or because of your righteousness, then beware. God may be accomplishing more through your non-believing contemporaries than you realize. And so we can have hope that God can use non-believers. And when we realize he can use non-believers to accomplish his will, we have hope for a better future no matter who is in office. We have hope for a better future no matter what decisions our school board makes, no matter what laws are or are not passed. And we can take hope that God works not only through non-believers, but that God can work through false believers. We can take hope that God can work through believers that don't hold the same beliefs that we do. He can work through those who voted for a different candidate than we did. He can work in spite of hatred. He can work in spite of biases. He can work in spite of ignorance. God is not limited. This does not excuse us from working for right. It doesn't. But pandemics and natural disasters, politicians and rulers, protests and riots, tragedy and triumph alike will come and go throughout history. 
but God is constant. He never changes. He fulfills his promises. He's for us. He's not against us. He never leaves us or forsakes us. And he works through those who belong to him. And he works through those who don't. God can work through anyone and anything. The second lesson that I see from this text, I think is best expressed in Ezra, chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. And here, it's going to make a reference to joy and pain coexisting. So this is my second lesson. Joy and pain can coexist. And this is what 10 through 13 says. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets and the Levites with cymbals took their places to praise the Lord, as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they said to the Lord, he is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. While many others shouted for joy, no one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. So what we see is that finally their dreams have come true. Finally, their hopes have been realized. But along with the rejoicing that they felt from that, there was another sound. And that was the sound of mourning from those who had seen the first temple. There was mourning for the lostness of what once was. There was a grief for the pain of what had been. And I love this story for its humanness. I love that there's no criticism or disapproval of the people that were mourning. In fact, scripture records that the sounds of joyful shouts could not be distinguished from the sound of people's crying. And while we see this as a story of salvation and redemption, it's of painful redemption. Even though it's a story of return, it's return that's marked with grief. It is a story of rejoicing, but of joy that's linked to the losses that came first. And as we've talked about before, life is like a pendulum that swings between joy and sorrow. And each of these places is just as much a part of life as the other is. So as we move forward from a season of COVID, as we move forward from economic crisis and racial, racial tension, because we will, even if only for a little while, our joy at being together again cannot be separated from the people that have been lost. Our health can't be distanced from the sickness that we've endured. Our economic stability can't be removed from the scarcity we've felt. And the sounds of our joyful shouts can never easily be distinguished from the sounds of our weeping. And so joy and pain can coexist together. And I would also say that joy many times is much more joyful because of the pain that came before. The third lesson is that we're freed to be prisoners of hope. 
were freed to be prisoners of hope. When you look at this Isaiah passage, you see that Cyrus is really a model of a king like Jesus. He's referred to in 45.1 as the anointed one or as Messiah. And the prophets had built their hope on the Messiah's return and the Messiah's leading us out of exile. And just like Cyrus or Cyrus liberated the Jewish captives from Babylon, Christ liberates us from the captivity of sin and separation from God. We see this in Jesus preaching at the beginning of his ministry. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So in the dark realities of our world, our hope is not in the gods that are created by human culture, but our hope is in the one who loves us. Our hope is in the one who gives himself for us. And in whatever way it takes, he works to set us free. And as we're set free, we become prisoners of another kind. We become prisoners of hope. Zechariah 9.12 says, return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. And in an article in Christianity Today that's titled Martin Luther King Jr. Exemplar of Hope, Dante Stewart says, those who hoped in Christ can no longer put up with reality as it is, but begin to suffer under it, to contradict it. King was the embodiment of this life of hope and protest. He did not put up with the American reality he experienced, but as one who was charged with the task of carrying on the ministry of Jesus, he suffered against it and contradicted it, which would cost him his life. He was indeed a prisoner of hope. To be a prisoner of hope is not the same thing as being optimistic. Life has been too realistic for that. Optimism is rooted in sentimentalism and believes in the inevitability of progress. Hope is rooted in a redemptive realism and the promise of the victory of God in Jesus. And when I read that, that just really struck me. I think in a lot of ways, that's where we still are, is that we have to um, contradict the realities that we see around us. We have to contradict uh, racial discrimination. We have to contradict people living and making decisions for their own good and not the good of the people around them. And as we do that, we become prisoners of hope. And we become people who live in the promise of the victory of God. And we're set free. So let's go back to the first question I ask you to keep in the back of your mind. What is my role in making a better world as we get to the far side of this latest crisis? Hebrews 11 tells us that we're foreigners and strangers who are looking for a better country. We're looking for a better country where there's no sickness or death, where there's no pain or sorrow, where there's no racial injustice or economic stress or broken relationships, where there's no disconnection from God. And as God has said that we're to be a blessing to the nations, as he makes a beginning, as he makes a better world, 
we have a role to play in that. And I just wanted to share with you what I hope will be the role of all of us individually and as a church as we work with God to make a better world. I hope we will wash our hands, stay at home when we have symptoms of sickness, not because we're fearful, but because we want to consider how our actions affect the other people around us and we want to protect the weak. I hope that we'll see the homeless, that we'll really see them, and that we'll struggle with how God wants us to treat them. I hope that as we move forward, we'll continue the habits of rest we started during stay at home, that we'll take long walks, that we'll sit outside and talk to our neighbors, that we'll take drives through the country, that we'll eat dinner at the park. I hope we'll remain intentional in supporting businesses in our community, in extending patience and grace when things aren't perfect, and in tipping generously. I hope we'll ask neighbors and coworkers and family members and roommates, how are you? And really want to know, even to push to get to the true answer. I hope we will ask, do you have everything you need? How can I help you? I hope we'll be ready to offer hope to those around us who are anxious and depressed and angry and struggling. I hope that we'll call and check on them, that we'll knock on their door, that we'll invite them to take a walk with us, that we'll sit and listen to them. I hope we'll leave flowers and brownies and cookies, as a lot of people have done for us, on each other's porches. And I hope that we'll do the same for those people that don't often get that. I hope that it won't be so rare that it enters our minds to do something just to make somebody smile. I hope that we'll use our voice to stand up for those who don't have a voice, that we'll protest not only in large groups, but even when and maybe especially when we are the only one there to protest. I hope that we'll smile at people who are different from us and make them feel seen and valued and safe and that that won't be weird or out of the ordinary. I hope that we'll pray for our family, our church, our city, our country, our world. I hope we'll spend time in the word and listening to God. I hope that we'll have a new appreciation for meeting together as a church family, that we'll come to the GDAC, that we'll get there early, that we'll come to small group excited, that we're ready to have meaningful conversations with one another and ready to connect in a real way and to serve each other in our church body. I hope we'll come with something to share with the body about how we've seen God working around us, a song, a scripture, a story. I hope we'll value the privilege we have of meeting together in person, face to face to worship our God. I hope that we won't take for granted church, small group, friends hanging out, the value of presence, community of all kinds, jobs, and hugs. I hope we will hug. I hope we will remember the lessons we've learned from Isaiah about listening to our God, asking him for help, trusting him, and being careful 
about thinking the decisions we make will only affect us. I hope that in doing those things, we will see the great hope that we have in him. And I want to close with this quote. I realized when I got to the end of uh, my sermon that I had a lot of quotes about Martin Luther King Jr. And I think that says a lot about the hope that he has given us um, in Christ and as a nation. But this actually is a quote from James Bevel, who was a close friend of his. And he said this at Martin Luther King Jr.'s funeral. There's a false rumor around that our leader's dead. Our leader is not dead. Martin Luther King is not our leader. Our leader is the man who led Moses out of Israel. Our leader is the man who went with Daniel into the lion's den. Our leader is the man who walked out of the grave on Easter morning. Our leader never sleeps nor slumbers. He cannot be put in jail. He has never lost a war. Our leader is still on the case. And as a church, I hope that we remain strong in that hope and that we extend that hope to everyone that we come in contact with. And so again, I leave you this question. What is my role in making a better world as we get to the far side of this latest crisis? And I'm not suggesting in any way that we're there yet, but I am saying that we will get there. And so we're going to take some time to think about that in your small groups today. And so maybe as I was talking, maybe as I was sharing my hope for us, it jogged something about something specific that God wants you to do or stop or continue doing. Maybe you have a verse that came to mind that applies to this. Maybe you just want to think aloud with your group about what this looks like for our church. I would encourage you when you get in your groups to either start or finish with a prayer. And if you have people in your group that you don't know, please welcome them and introduce yourselves to them. Don't let them slip out of that group without having um, some kind of welcome from you. And then just a reminder, these are going to be random groups. So don't wait for somebody in your group to take charge. All of you are leaders. All of you are capable of helping your group get going and keeping them on track. Um, but spend some time just talking about what is my role in making a better world? What is our role as a church in making a better world as we get to the far side of this crisis? I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to split up into small groups, and we'll end from our small groups this morning. God, I thank you for being a God that extends such great hope to us. I thank you for being our leader, and I thank you for using people that don't even know you. I thank you for working through people that are hostile to you. Um, God, I thank you that after times of captivity, there are always times of freedom. And I thank you that we're freed to be prisoners of hope. I pray for our church that we would be beacons of light in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, that we would represent you well, and that we would bring the good news to people around us. I pray that we'll stand firm in the hope that you are God that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. And I pray, God, um, that we would be better because of the tragedies that we experience in our life. 
I pray that we can move forward as joy and pain coexist together and that you can bring something beautiful, that you can make a beginning out of that. Uh, we love you so much. And I just pray that as we split up into our small groups, that your spirit would really speak to us and through us. It's in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Love you guys. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.